What's going on, guys? Energy 360 Network by Intercom. Excited to be bringing you this awesome interview with digital technology extraordinaire, Jeffrey Can, who is also the author of Bits, Bites, and Barrels. I've had the opportunity to be on a couple panels with Jeffrey Can, and me and Stu were able to sit down with him and chat everything digital technology from sort of where it was before uh, coronavirus, some of the big technology shifts that we might see during coronavirus, and specifically where he sees some of the opportunities are in the digital space moving forward. I would highly recommend checking out this interview and you can check out all things at the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com. Here's Stuart now to kick this off. Hey guys, how are you all today? Uh, we've got uh, Jeffrey Can. He is a author trainer and speaker and uh, motivational speaker. He has written Bits, Bites, and Barrels. And uh, Jeffrey, we are just so thrilled to have you here today. So thank you for stopping by. I'm delighted to be here, gentlemen. Yeah, this will be awesome. Looking forward to this one. And we also have Michael. Michael is our uh, host of Oil & Gas 360 uh, Digital. So uh, Michael's got a few uh, fun things for us as well, too. So uh, Jeffrey, can you start us out a little bit? Because you've got a, you're uh, uh, up in Canada, you work for a Canadian uh, oil company, and you've transitioned yeah. into author, speaker, motivational, and trainer. So tell us a little bit of uh, where you, how you got to the, being an author. Sure. So the journey started when I left university and joined Imperial Oil, which at the time was based in Toronto. And for those of us who know the oil industry, all the oil companies were at one point headquartered there because that's where the capital markets were. But you know, over time, they all moved to Calgary because that's where the oil is. And so I joined Imperial Oil in Toronto, eventually left and joined a company called Touche Ross, which became Deloitte, now a very well-known professional services firm. And I spent uh, almost 30 years working for Deloitte, uh, 20 years as a partner all around the world. I did stints in Hong Kong, uh, Calgary, uh, worked uh, in uh, literally every continent with the exception of Africa. And uh, through all that time, I uh, concentrated my energies on uh, the problems of the day that we're facing in the oil and gas industry. And um, uh, in, starting in 2012, I relocated to Brisbane, Australia, because I was watching the, the, um, what, what the Canadians were calling gas manufacturing. We now call that uh, tight gas. But in 2008, 2009, and Canada had figured out that if, if they could uh, combine hydraulic fracking and horizontal drilling, they could go after the uh, shale resource. And the play there was uh, to unlock uh, natural gas to displace coal. So I, I was staring at that and said, you know what? That's going to be the industry of the future. So I moved to Australia to learn the LNG industry from one end to the other because I figured back then Canada was going to get into the LNG industry. <laughs> that didn't happen because Canada hasn't figured out how to get these large projects done. So I ended up uh, leaving, uh, coming from Australia, moving back to Canada and uh, back into Deloitte. And at the time, uh, this thing called digital was starting to become a thing. And while I was in Australia, uh, I, I noted the, the Australians were much further ahead than Canada was on adopting uh, the digital technologies. And uh, I then spent a couple more years with Deloitte in Calgary, and at that time began to really devote my time and energy to asking and answering this rather interesting question. When was digital going to come into oil and gas? How big was it going to be? Who's it going to impact? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? 
And if you're a person or worker in the industry, what do you need to do personally and professionally so that you can either extend your career in the industry or revector your career so, so that you're or orienting yourself more towards the possibilities presented by uh, digital innovation. And that, that, of course, gave rise to a, a weekly blog series, which turned into a podcast, and that turned into the book. And the book was published in January of 2019. And uh, I was also contacted by a client. They had read the book, and they said, gosh, this is great, but I really would value it if you could come in and teach this to my people. Like, it's one thing to give them the book. It's quite another to say, have you really internalized the concept? So I turned the book into a one-day executive uh, training course on digital awareness. And uh, now the course is an online offering as well as an in-person offering. Of course, you can appreciate <laughs> there is no in-person offering right now. We're all kind of in lockdown. But the online course is available on Udemy online, and it's had over 1,000 students now. There's probably, I don't know, probably, I think it's a pace about 100 a week are, are picking up the course to take it. So it's moving along uh, as, as you would expect in, during the lockdown. So that's kind of the story of the book and how it came about. And, and the, the, the uh, book itself is based almost entirely on that series of blog articles I had published starting in 20, 2016, all about different dimensions of digital and innovation and how they're gonna affect the oil and gas industry. Wow, uh, you know, a lot of authors or uh, teachers don't have the world experience. And being with uh, Deloitte and being a partner in your world travels, uh, I really can see the expertise coming through in your book, uh, and especially your uh, Australian uh, e examples that are in there. You've got several just real-world examples in your book, uh, bits, bites, and barrels. Uh, in the first part, we have data analytics and connectivity. Uh, can you just kind of give us an overview of that real quick? Oh, for sure. So I, one of the, when I was putting the book together, I, I uh, as you do when you're, if you're going to build any product, you go and do some market research. And the market research I did was to, uh, to try and understand, was there already a book in the marketplace that was aimed at the same problem I was aiming at? Because if there was, you'd have to take a slightly different stance to it. What I discovered was there are no other books in the market that look at the oil and gas industry from one end to the other, from upstream, midstream, downstream, uh, retailing, wholesaling, trading, capital projects, this is the only book of its kind that uh, touches on all of those topics. What I did also find out though was there isn't a single definition for digital. And uh, you could go to McKinsey and you'd get the McKinsey definition, you go to Deloitte, get the Deloitte definition, you go to IBM, they'll tell you what digital actually is. But what I wanted was a definition that everyone could embrace because it wasn't colored by someone's agenda to sell products or services. The International Energy Agency published a landmark study in November of 2017 where they sketched out a definition for digital. And they said something that is digital has to combine three things. It has to incorporate data, some kind of analytic capability, and connectivity, those three building blocks. And I, I like to use my, uh, my, my smartwatch as an example or, or a mobile phone. My mobile phone, your mobile phone has uh, data in it, your address book. It has the ability to do mathematics, the distance between two points on a map, because you can see a calculating distance. And finally, connectivity. You can talk to Bluetooth networks, Wi-Fi networks, telephone service, uh, wireless communications. Those three things combined create something which is digital. What's interesting about those three things, data, analytics, and connectivity are all expanding at exponential rates of growth. 
IBM estimates that between 2016 and 2018, the world recorded as much data on disk or in storage as the world had recorded prior to 2016. To give you a sense as to how much data we're accumulating. Now, I half jokingly say, it's mostly pictures of cats on the internet. <laughs> That's still data. But the reality is there's a lot of data that we're uh, generating. On analytics, that watch, that watch there, which is on my wrist, has the same horsepower as a, um, a, spray, uh, a, a supercomputer from the 1980s that uh, oil and gas exec, uh, people would have used to do seismic data interpretation. So our employees are walking around with not one, but usually two supercomputers, smartwatch on the wrist and a phone in the pocket. And of course, in connectivity, if you go back to the 1970s, we would have transmitted uh, a terabyte of data per month on international uh, uh, telephone networks. We now transmit a terabyte, terabyte of data per second all around the world. That's a growth rate of 6 million, roughly. So if you put it into those terms, you can see how the, this rapid growth, this exponential growth of these basic building blocks poised to transform anything that can be digitized. Uh, Cisco did a uh, great book called The Digital Vortex, and they came up with a great phrase, which I really like. It says, anything that can be digitized will be digitalized. And the reason is because data analytics and connectivity, all based on computer chips, are falling in cost and doubling in capability every 18 months or so. So the consequence is, if you can put digital innovation onto a thing or a service, you will. And that's where the definition came from. And the application in oil and gas is, you know, people, of course, but also equipment, rigs, uh, frack spreads, pumps, doesn't, all those devices out there will all eventually be connected up uh, into this uh, uh, brave new world of digital. Uh, cool. And uh, Jeffrey, in your book, you also mentioned a couple of things. Uh, uh, business processes are dramatically being changed because of the analytics, putting these into the SCADA devices and really shortening the billing time and, and those kind of things. So now that we have the uh, analytics and getting the data, how does that affect the business processes? So the, the processes themselves are benefiting from a variety of different um, uh, uh, impacts because of digital. So uh, the first impact is a, a minimum 20% uh, reduction in OPEX um, or for a given operating uh, business, whatever the OPEX measures might happen to be, be it labor or feedstock or supply. So a 20% reduction in cost or OPEX. Uh, the, uh, the second impact is a 20% improvement in productivity. So if you have a given asset and it's running 85% uh, today, uh, you, you will, through digital, uh, get yourself up 20%, which, uh, which will take you from 80 to what, mid-90s? So it's a big, big, big jump in uh, productivity. And uh, third is a reduction in um, carbon emissions, which is a kind of a part of, I view that as a kind of cost because the way to think about it is as a cost to society or as a, as a taxation on, on carbon emission, uh, carbon um, consumption. Uh, and then for the upstream industry, quite, <clears throat> quite specifically, uh, digital applied to the interpretation of subsurface resources has the potential to expand our reserves understanding by as much as 5%. And that's accruing mostly, mostly to the resources which are tight. So that's the shale plays and the Marcellus and the uh, uh, Horn River Basin uh, in um, uh, Eagleford and, and, and all of the other tight basins around the world. And the reason for that is because we can now get very, very granular understanding of those subsurface resources and expand the reserve space. 
you might not think, well, 5%, what is that? Well, it's 500 billion barrels of oil, so worth uh, several trillions of dollars. So it's worth going after. Those are the main, the main uh, key drivers. So cost, productivity, and resource asset valuation. And then all of the others are going to be, you know, in my, the way I articulate it, they're all going to be just variations on those, those three major uh, shifts. Um, so as you take a look at the business models, energy is a very, very vulnerable uh, thing to data in the IoT and Internet of Things and everything else. What's your opinion on yep. security as all of this comes in? You got your uh, SCADA, you got your data, then you go to the business processes. Yep. How does security fit in? So security historically uh, in the upstream industry, so depending on where you're at in the industry, because there's a slightly different flavor or answer to this. But in the upstream industry, the industry has benefited by the adoption of SCADA technologies dating back principally to the dawn of the 80s and 90s. And those SCADA technologies have been what are called air-gapped. In other words, they're not connected to the internet. And since they're not directly connected to the internet, it's very hard for people to kind of come in and penetrate them the way they do, you know, hack into, into other networks and services. And that's changing. It's changing because of two things. One is that uh, it, industry has discovered there is tremendous value if you can connect that SCADA environment up to, to either get at data off of the historian so that you can analyze it or provide input back into the SCADA environment. Uh, is a, is a, uh, to create some uh, access value, and, and that could be around controlling devices. Uh, the second major impact with uh, SCADA systems um, is that the newest generations of SCADA systems are themselves becoming cloud-enabled, so they are effectively internet-based businesses in their own right. And of course, we all know, <laughs> when you're air-gapped and people can't get at your system, you've got this nice natural protection. You're obscure and you're off the grid. But in the newer models, that's no longer the case. Uh, and so uh, security is now, there's not a board I know of where if you, if you said to the, you know, to the to, in terms of uh, planning that you might be doing, we're planning to bring digital innovation into our, our business, uh, the board's going to say, have you thought about security? It's probably the only thing that they ask. What about security? So uh, my advice to companies is if you're uh, going to be going down and exploring digital innovation, you do not add security in after the fact. You build it in right up front. It's way easier to, to do that than it is to layer it on uh, later on. Mm -hmm. So uh, along that note, you know, security is, is really, you know, something that, you know, I think it's really come a long way too. I think the reason why you talk about cloud computing a lot in your book mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. part of the reason why I think it's, it's, and I think you mentioned this, but why it's going to become more important is because the security has become much more easier to actually securitize your cloud platform versus a couple of years ago, even, even when your book came out. So I think that, you know, that's, I think, been a big contributor to why some of this stuff has moved forward. Yeah, there's no question about that. And um, it, this might not be as clear or as obvious as it, as, uh, as it could be, it should be, but um, the, the world cloud providers are concentrating into a handful of very, very large organizations. And the clouds themselves are kind of slightly connected. So if you're doing something over here with Google, there's a pretty good chance you're also doing something over here with Amazon and something over there with Microsoft Azure. So the clouds themselves are getting connected to each other. What does this mean? Well, this means that the cloud providers themselves are very concerned about the possibility of uh, corruption passing between from one cloud to the next. 
So they're working very hard to secure these environments because of the, the risks that these things pose. Uh, and so as a result, uh, you can imagine, you know, if, if a, when a virus, uh, if, if you're not using cloud services and a virus uh, it gets into your environment and your oil company, your, your, uh, only your team is going to be able to help you solve for that. Yes, you can hire some hired guns at the, at the, at the margin to get, kind of get you over the line, but it, you're really dependent on your guys. Whereas if you're up in the cloud, you've got the benefit of Google's engineers, Microsoft engineers, and Amazon's, Amazon's engineers. You've got to believe that if a virus hits and gets surfaced in Google, they're right on the phone to say to Amazon, heads up, <laughs> this is here, yep. this is its DNA, and pay attention to this one because it could be really bad. Those, it's a far safer answer, frankly, to be involved with those guys than it is to be by yourself with your six guys trying to protect your environment. So I, I try to encourage oil companies to think, think bigger than just, oh, my team is going to be all that I need to secure my business for uh, in this digital world. Interesting point you made about, about the security stuff, but, but I want to shift gears here because there's, I mean, you bring up so many great points in your book. And one of the things that, that I found very interesting was how the, the rollout of digital has taken place both in Europe and the Americas due to some sometimes just regulations. And you specifically talked about mm -hmm. artificial intelligence when it claims to complying with actual. And so I found that interesting that there's a, the rollout of digital has, has, is different throughout the world just because of regulations. Yeah, very much so. So in uh, Europe, um, the Europeans have adopted a much higher standards for data privacy, for instance, uh, with the GDPR rules. Uh, the Europeans are, uh, are have been at the forefront of penalizing the large American uh, tech companies uh, for uh, data privilege, data uh, usage, and and uh, and the like. Uh, and the Europe, Europeans have also, at a more macro le energy level, uh, have been very clear that they intend to convert the EU into a, a carbon neutral economy uh, by 2050. And big oil companies are starting to fall into line to support this agenda, including um, Shell, BP, Repsol, among others. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a departure from what you'd see in North America. Uh, the North Americans have not embraced this, uh, the uh, drive to the uh, green economy uh, to the same degree that the Europeans have. And so the Europeans are already starting to question um, uh, today, how are they going to achieve carbon neutrality? Well, frankly, there's the, one of the answers is they're going to ha have to find ways to offset what happens in Europe because they can't quite get down to net zero with something that happens somewhere else and guarantee that what they're doing somewhere else actually is achieving a, a carbon benefit. Uh, today, that's all done through carbon trading and cap and trade and a few other mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But the, there's enough evidence to suggest that, that uh, the, the ability to create a carbon credit in one location which is not backed up with evidence that it actually is achieving a carbon benefit has the effect of corrupting the entire trading mechanism and, and verification on the, on the side that's claiming those credits. So there's a lot of work to be done there. One of the tools that Repsol is very interested in in tackling this question is blockchain because blockchain creates a way to track and trace uh, the things like a carbon emission and a carbon credit from one location to the next in a nice immutable fashion. So I, I pay a lot of attention to what the Europeans are up to at the industrial level, this sort of more macro view, whereas I pay more attention in North America to what individual companies are up to because the, there, there's lots of creativity going on in North America that uh, uh, particularly in the tight resources you just don't see in Europe because they don't have the tight resources. So you, know, you have to pay attention to them in, in, in each to their, uh, each to their, their location and their strength.
great information on your uh, on blockchain. You have a good section on blockchain in your in your book, yeah. and um, how does blockchain is changing? Uh, how does blockchain? I'm going to ask you two questions, if that's okay. <laughs> uh, where do you see blockchain being dropped into the oil and gas area, and how does blockchain fit into the financial model of of oil and gas? Well, the uh, so both of those are, are uh, questions are uh, and answers to those questions are moving exceptionally rapidly. So it's very hard to kind of get to a, a crisp uh, a crisp answer. But blockchain in oil and gas uh, is already here. Uh, there are a number of oil companies. Shell is one. Repsol is another who have actually bought or invested in blockchain startups specifically so they could understand how this technology will transform the uh, the industry. Examples of where blockchain is in use is in trading. Uh, there's a company called VACT, V-A-K-T, in Europe uh, that has built a, uh, replace, a platform for helping to facilitate the trading of uh, petroleum products. Uh, Data Gumbo in the U.S. has just finished a major program, uh, a development program to uh, deal with water handling and water tracking. Uh, there is a uh, applications emerging in areas like uh, rental techno rental gear and how do you handle rental gear, uh, royalty calculations with a company called Guild Ones doing uh, royalty calculation um, uh, on blockchain and, and addressing uh, data collection associated with proving royalties by putting the data on blockchain. So blockchain's here. It's not a, it's not like it's not here. It's here. Uh, so, uh, and, and the, the potential for it to affect or play a role in the industry is enormous. The oil and gas industry has all the characteristics that make it a perfect candidate to adopt blockchain. It, it, the product is uh, fungible, so it's, it's in the undifferentiated. Uh, it is exceptionally high value. The players in it are highly motivated to, uh, to uh, implement their own mechanisms to assure trustworthiness uh, with their counterparties. Uh, and there's enormous amounts of money moving from hand to hand. There's lots of contracts and contracting that has to go on. There is plenty of scope to bring blockchain technology into oil and gas. Is now, there a second question? Oh. Well, you, you finished the second question because that's equally important. Yep. What about the money side? Now, we know uh, Venezuela tried to kick off and create a cryptocurrency to enable their uh, uh, trade with uh, Venezuelan crude. Uh, we also know the R Russians are trying to turn on a cryptocurrency. The Chinese have said that they're going to create a cryptocurrency for, uh, uh, um, for, for their uh, economy. It is inevitable that there will be trading uh, in oil based on some sort of cryptocurrency in the future. That's, that, that, that would be crazy if we started seeing the petrodollar go on the blockchain. That would be crazy. Oh. Is there a... Uh, yeah, it, it probably is. Um, is there a segment of the, the, whether it's upstream, midstream, downstream, any sort of the energy business that you see blockchain that has, you think has the most immediate impact on that maybe is not be using right now? You know, I think there's some classic ones, but is there something that you're seeing sort of as an expert that maybe is being underutilized that could have a huge impact? Uh, yeah, the, 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 the number of use, there's lots of use cases that you can point mm -hmm. to in blockchain, but if you looked at a segment of the industry where blockchain would play a, could play a role and where that segment actually has the need to make change happen, uh, you have to bring those two together. Who's got the need and where is the business problems and where can blockchain make a difference? And the, the upstream industry today has the greatest sets of needs. 
And that's because commodity prices continue to struggle at a, at a low level. Mm -hmm. The average cost of production in North America is a little, still a little too high to compete with the likes of Iran and Iraq and Saudi Aramco. And uh, so we still have a ways to go to get our costs down. And uh, so if I were in the industry, I, I'd be pointing my attention to the upstream for the application of this technology because the need there is the greatest. Um, Jeffrey, when we're talking about, we've almost come full circle on this. And in your book, you also address the board members. Yeah. So once you have a, uh, a opportunity to visit with, um, all of these programs, all of these things going on, how do you recommend technology in the boardroom interact? Well, the, the, the main challenge for the board is that they uh, frequently are involved with helping oil and gas companies establish strategy. So there's a, they play a role there uh, and they play a role by endorsing and, and promoting uh, programs of investment that uh, drive change in the business. So that's sort of the, and then the third role, of course, is their ongoing oversight and governance role. Uh, so to the extent that the board has a, has a gap between what they understand digital can do and where digital is actually at, then the, the challenge for the board is how do, they, how do they close that gap? And there's a variety of ways to do that. Everything from put someone on your board that actually has a digital background. That's something that some oil companies have done, gone to Silicon Valley and found uh, tech entrepreneurs who, who can work in, work in, work in uh, on their service, their board. Others go put their board through board level training around uh, here's what digital is and how it affects the industry and, and, the, and uh, the role of the board then becomes motivating and encouraging management to think differently and embrace um, a bigger answer when it comes to the kinds of investment programs that they can put forward for the oil company. And so that's, that's really the role of the board. Um, I've written several articles on, on the whole board role because I'm a big believer that uh, the tone from the top is what's going to drive the investment agenda as you go down. And management, if management came into, <laughs> came into its board and said, we're doing nothing with digital, the board should be alarmed. Similarly, if management came in and said, we're doing all of this with uh, digital, then the board should also be saying, well, we'd like to kind of get a little closer to that, see what you're up to because of the worries about cyber and, and, and the like. There's no way the board can kind of set this aside, in my mind, mm -hmm. set this aside and say, well, that's not, not something we should concern ourselves with. I just don't believe that that is the right answer. So I encourage boards to get educated, get smart, go on tours, Go, tr go travel. Yeah, well, used to, I used to say go travel. Not so much now, but, you know, go, go, go visit some of the industry leaders. Try and see how Amazon behaves and see what kind of insight that gives you around how you might think about organizing and then operating an oil company. I think that's awesome. And I think that's some really good insight to, to, to see. And, and I think you're seeing a lot more of that pop up in the energy industry. You know, Stu mentioned bringing it full circle. And, and I think, you know, one of the biggest things that you talk about in your book is how the rollout of digital technology should be over the years. And, and, and clearly, when you, I think you wrote this book, I don't think you envisioned COVID-19 or the coronavirus and all this work from home stuff. So nope. because of this, is that is there anything in your book that you would you, you you would change a little bit, or is maybe your outlook for any of the stuff rollouts of all these different technology moving forward in, in, in the wake of, of of this you know really just unprecedented event? 
unprecedented in, in, in many ways. So uh, there, I've, I've put, uh, been asked this question before, as you can appreciate, um, and, but, but my answer is changes, unfortunately. I can imagine I it's just bouncing a little, around every time. Smart. Exactly, exactly. But a couple of things that really, really stand out for me. One is that it is remarkable how many oil companies went from an entirely office-based workforce to an entirely work-from-home-based work, uh, workforce, and they did that in a week. And they wouldn't have been able to do that if they haven't, didn't have the infrastructure in place to let them do that. That's uh, mobility technologies, cloud computing, network access, and so forth. That's, that's been a, a real eye-opener. The second big eye-opener, though, for me is that the, the normal pattern in oil and gas to adopt change is proof of concepts and pilots and uh, tests and then AFE sport funding and then get into the budget cycle and blah, blah, blah. This takes time. This takes a lot of time. And what the pandemic has showed us is that oil and gas actually, when it's pushed, can implement change really quickly, really quickly. And that also says that if there is a plan inside an oil and gas company or service company or anyone in the industry that had a, an agenda to achieve some outcome, I would be questioning whether or not the plans are fast enough now. We've, we've shown we can move exceptionally quickly. And uh, just to keep pace with uh, digital change, the industry is going to have to move faster at adopting change. And, uh, and so I would, I would look at any, any statement of digital strategy or digital intent and just, and just ask a question. Have you really gone far enough is your vision big enough? Look at how fast you were able to embrace a change just to cope with this pandemic. Are you thinking big enough and are you moving fast enough given all of the other changes in society that are happening? Carbon, demographics, um, the uh, population shift, the supply and demand shifts in this industry. And I, I would argue, no, most of those plans now look timid, uninspired, and demotivating particularly in light of how fast we've had to make change happen. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a very important point. And, you know, as you wrap it up here, I think, you know, we were, we, we were, me and you were both on a panel with, with David Forsberg, who's a friend of the show. And yeah. one of the analogies he always mentioned was with energy, with especially digital technologies, is the concept of eating the elephant. You got to start somewhere. And sometimes <laughs> fear can be the biggest motivator. And I think this, not fear of just what was going to happen, but fear of, of a lot of stuff I think is what moved us. So I think it's, it's been, it's been crazy to see the change we've been on, on uh, going under over the past couple months. Yeah, and, and moving exceptionally quickly. Yeah. Fear is, fear is a big motivator. Uh, you know, uh, when you think about what motivates humans, some of us are motivated to um, to achieve a a certain outcome. In other words, motivated by greed or ambition, whereas others are far more motivated not to lose anything, which is a fear-based motivation. And uh, so, tech entrepreneurs tend to be a little bit more growth, ambition, and to take over the world. Whereas many in oil and gas are more oriented towards don't break it, <laughs> keep it running, let's not put anything at risk. And uh, the pandemic has, has uh, shown us that um, they, uh, you know, the, the, those that can embrace the change quickly um, are the ones that are going to be well positioned to, for the future. I mean, just look at the technology we're using for this, Zoom. Like, Zoom is now a verb. I'm going to Zoom you. Let's Zoom. Like, where, where did that come from in the space of, of what, 90 days? And so, yeah, the, 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 the companies that are at the forefront of this are the ones that are poised for, uh, for success, in my view. You know, Jeffrey, as we, we wind up and close 
thank you very much for your time. Uh, I yes, want to hear what you. your next. Uh, I want to hear what your next steps are. Uh, you're uh, training. You're you're doing all your stuff. If, uh, how soon are you going to get your next book out? Sorry for putting you on the spot. <laughs> you want to hear what your next steps are going on. Well, um, uh, of course, during the pandemic, there is a, a uh, inability to carry on as, as before, so public speaking and so forth. But I'm developing a couple of keynote addresses, which I'll be using to help the industry address and, and uh, drive change forward. It's my belief that the incumbents who are in the industry, so uh, individuals working in the industry, the regulators, uh, it is the incumbents in this industry who are actually best positioned to lead us through the energy transition of the future. And the challenge, of course, is we're not getting it right. And, and so we have to make some changes if we're going to be successful. Uh, so that's my, the, the thrust of my uh, keynote, which, of course, ties into my, into my book. Um, the, the, uh, my next moves, as far as I haven't actually sort of turned yet on, uh, is there a, another book uh, and what would it look like? Um, I think a, there, there, we need a bit more time uh, to allow the industry to drive change forward before before I think it, the industry is ready for a look back to say, well, what works and what doesn't work? And so I think a bit more time there. Uh, as for me, my, um, my uh, 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 time now spent is mostly oriented towards the online world, <laughs> as, as you, not, not surprisingly. Uh, so my online, online training course is doing very well, but you know, at 100 students a, a week, it, it takes a lot of time to kind of keep that, keep that, um, keep that uh, moving. Uh, so that's where my time is, is headed, at least for the next uh, little while. Uh, I expect, though, that we will be back and having, uh, you know, gatherings of 100 people at a, t uh, at a time uh, in the fall. And at that point, I hope to be back on stage presenting and sharing perspectives around digital in the industry. Well, you know, Jeffrey, again, thank you very much. And yes, Michael, thank you. Uh, we sure appreciate both of your time. And Thank everybody, uh, make sure you take a look at Bits, Bites, and Barrels. Uh, all yep. of his contact information and training information will be, oh, there we go. There it is. There's the title, yeah. Yep, it's available uh, in, in three formats, of course. There's the paperback, which is uh, print on demand. So there's no inventory of this anywhere in a bookstore. You, you go online and buy it from Amazon or uh, any, there's about 100 sites around the world that carry the book. Uh, there's also the ebook version and the audiobook version. Uh, Audi Audible and iTunes carry the audiobook, uh, and those are uh, great products for um, you know if you're for for uh, if you're out to camping or on a long drive this summer. Uh, and then of course my online training course is on Udemy. Just look for it by uh, by title Digital Oil and Gas, and uh, and I hope you take it. That's a, it's it's a highly rated and as I say lots and lots of people around the world now taking the course. Well, again, thank you. And we sure, I appreciated your book, by the way. It was a very thank good. Read. Thanks, guys. Hey, we'll talk to you all soon. Thank Thanks. you. This is awesome. Bye for now. That's our episode with expert in digital technology, Jeffrey Ken. Jeffrey, we really appreciate you coming and sitting down with us. And Stuart and I really appreciate you guys listening to this interview. If you want to hear more of the Energy 360 Network interviews, please go to Apple, iTunes, um, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out all of our articles and all of our great work at the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com. Until next time.